I'm going to quote Reverend Wendy, who is also a pro-Bitcoin candidate. You know, it's also financial justice. You know, it, it really is another way for people to flourish and, and have sovereignty over their lives and live in dignity. And that's why one in six people hold cryptocurrency. Welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast, where we explore the intersection of Bitcoin and progressive issues. I'm your host, Mark Stefani. Today's guest is California congressional candidate, Erica Rhodes. I invited Erica onto the show because not only is she a Democrat, but she's also pro-Bitcoin. But more importantly, I invited Erica on the show because she happens to be one of the most inspiring people I've come across in years. Her energy, her desire to help others, her integrity is clearly palpable. It is obvious that she cares deeply about her community, her students, the state of California, and this nation. I'm happy to have her on the show to talk to her more about her platform and, of course, Bitcoin. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it. Enjoy the show. Erica Rhodes, thank you so much for joining me on the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Today is uh, Martin Luther King Day, and I'm wondering if your impression of the day, what you take away from it has changed now that you're running for Congress. I think for us, what we've decided to do, what I've decided to do is just respect the um, King's wishes and um, not celebrating it without the legislation being passed. Everyone obviously deserves to be able to vote. And the fact that that's even a partisan issue is unfortunate. It's it's truly unfortunate. But I think what it did was expedite the urgency of why we need new people in office and why it's also okay to primary other Democrats. Um, I think there's this notion that, oh, you shouldn't primary a Democrat, you know, only go after Republican seats or vice versa. And I don't think that's the case. I think that anybody that is not trying to bring our country together, serve, and do the right thing shouldn't be holding office. So I think it just solidified that notion. Absolutely. Well, we've got a lot to cover here today. And I think a lot of our listeners um, are new to the space and may not be as familiar with Erica Rhodes. Would you mind taking a few minutes to talk about your your past and how you became a teacher and now a congressional candidate? Yeah. So I'm, I t- currently teach K through sixth grade, but you kind of change grade levels depending on the year. So typically I'm upper elementary math and science, but this year I have the good fortune of doing K through sixth grade science. And I've been teaching for 10 years. My very first year of teaching, I wrote a curriculum for how to approach science education differently. And then I was teacher of the year by the LA Clippers, which is really, really exciting. And then after that, I was invited to do speaking events, uh, engagements, on my approach to education and I've been published. And so now what I'm trying to do is serve in Congress on the education and labor committee to fight for education reform, modernizing our education system and making sure that we are elevating youth voices and investing in our youth. Um, So it's been a long 10 years, but a lot of amazing things have happened. You had an interesting upbringing, correct? You grew up in Vegas. Your father was a UFC fighter. Your mom, a serial entrepreneur. Is that correct? Yes. So I am originally from Las Vegas and I moved out to LA in 2006. But growing up, um, my dad um, is very well known in the UFC world. And um, that was pretty cool. I I should probably talk about this more than I normally do. Um, But it was really cool to have a professional fighter as a father, because I think it's a huge part of who I am today because I grew up doing martial arts and boxing and I would spend literally the summers with him and we would do karate like all day long. (laughs) And so, um, it really shaped who I am today. And I really have uh, been able to build that relationship with my father through, um, that experience and watching him train and do really hard things. And it's, it was pretty incredible. And then my mom, She's Asian and German. Um, My mom is 
one of the most passionate people I've ever met. She is one of those people, fall down nine, get up 10, um, will always go for it no matter how old she gets. And that in and of itself is very inspiring. I grew up with these incredible parents and, um, Fun fact about my childhood is I learned to play the cello, which is why in sixth grade, all the way through high school, which is why I'm a huge supporter of the arts. I learned sign language in college. I'm eclectic. I don't know. <laughs> no, yeah, absolutely. And I'm curious to know, so your, your mom on one side is, uh, you know, arguably the, the creative individual, serial entrepreneur, your father on the other side, correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe a bit more stoic at the athlete. How did their parenting styles differ for you? And how has that manifested in your adult life? My dad is strict, but reasonable. And when he's strict, it was always in our best interest. It was always um, to keep us safe. It was um, to make sure that um, we didn't put ourselves in bad situations. And he also parented... um, through teaching me through like life. So for example, he really wanted to drill into me, never do drugs, smoke or drink. Like that was very important to him. And so he took me to where he grew up, which is uh, when he moved to Las Vegas, a one bedroom apartment in the worst part of Las Vegas. And he said, Erica, if you drink, smoke or do drugs, you're going to end up here. And he like, so that's how he raised me. He like always just like try to show me and open my eyes. And I think that's partly why I'm a visionary type of person. I'm, I'm a, um, I approach my life in that way. Like I have to see it to believe it. And he, and he was very inspirational. And my dad, I, I think this is really cool. He never missed a cheerleading I did cheerleading. He never missed a cheerleading game, like a game I cheered at. He showed up to everything that I've ever did. And he's never told me I couldn't do anything. Any dream that I've ever had, he's always supported, but he would always couple it with, but you got to work hard. And so I think that's where I get my work ethic. And then my mom, who's like a dreamer, she always pushed the narrative of being independent and never depending on a man. And it's probably from her um, experiences, which I don't want to talk about because that's her, her story, not mine. But um, it was always about being independent and being self-sufficient and, and she, and she's Asian. So it was, it's this certain level of expectation that you had to live up to um, just so you can be self-sufficient, if that makes sense. No, it does. Absolutely. And, and you've described your parents as encouraging you in the manner of, quote, why not you? Was that something that was always empowering for you? Or did it take time to actually grow into owning that? No, it was it was since I was little. My dad is like, don't make excuses. If you see a problem or injustice, you just deal with it. You go, you go solve it. Don't, don't wait for other people. That's just has, that's always been how they've approached life. That's how they raised me to be. And I think that's why I've lived quite an extraordinary life. I don't like, unless someone asks me a specific question, I don't really like divulge it, but I've had a lot of life experiences and they're usually rooted into this, this, like, I just step up and do it type of thing. I think it's just so natural for me to do it. Like I was talking about sign language. Like there was a girl in my classroom, Colleen, who um, was only allotted a certain amount of interpreter hours. And so she didn't get the full curriculum. And I thought that was like such an injustice. Like how is she paying full tuition, but only getting a, a certain limited time of interpretation? And then depending on a note taker from another student, which compromises their education, and so I learned sign language to be able to help and advocate for her. And so I, I think I've always just been that way. Was that something that your parents fostered, do you think? Yeah, I think because they both had really hard lives. You know, um, my dad's mom died when he was eight and he has six brothers and sisters and grew up incredibly poor, like, like poor, poor. And then my mom my grandpa was in the military, moved around a lot and had a very stern household. And it really, I'm like, I'm thinking, like no one really asking these questions. It's, I think it really shaped how they approach parenting and the values that they try to instill in me. And more importantly, being a person that is principled, having like a certain level of standard, mm-hmm. if that makes sense? Like moral standards. Absolutely. And I was going to 
ask you actually about your your father losing a parent. I and I asked that because my father lost both his parents when he was young, and so I definitely think that that manifested in how he parented my brother and I. It sounds like that his loss definitely had an impression on him and how he in turn parented you. Yeah, I I think because my um, dad's mom was not there and my Mm. grandfather, my dad's dad, was not very active in his life. I think he made the conscious decision to be very active in my life. And that's why he always showed up to everything that I did. Just recently, he came out for Christmas and we had this really sweet heart to heart and he got personal with me on, um, as he's, cause he's aging and stuff. Like, so we're, the conversations are starting to change. And I think for him, he said something, I'm just going to be very personal. He said something to me that I think was very telling. He said, you know, of all the kids that we have, cause I have another brother, I have two brothers. He's a, we can trust you the most. I can trust you with my life. I can trust you if we left the will to you that you will do the right thing. And it makes me very proud. Like Erica, it makes me very proud that we have a kid that we raised that we can trust to, to do the right thing. And I was like, well, where is this coming from? And he basically said his dad was very hard on him, like very, very hard on him, very strict and favored of his other siblings over him. But my dad, I guess, apparently was from his perspective was the one that always showed up for him, never disrespected him, always try to honor him and, and be a really good child. And, um, I think there's a little, some hurt there because of that. And so that's another reason why I think he made such an effort to be such a great father to me to overcompensate for what he didn't have, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. I, I feel like I've experienced that myself. My father certainly seems to have, you don't, you don't even want to say overcompensated because it's still a genuine love there. Certainly think it led to a need for certainty, both in his life and then in, in trying to get uh, my brother and I into a life that is less risky and more certain because he didn't grow up with certainty. What was the biggest lesson you learned from your father? Responsibility for my actions, most certainly. Much to your point, like you take ownership both for the the good and the bad that you have nobody else to blame but yourself. But that's also, it was also an empowering thing. It wasn't just a disciplinary thing. You know, you take the responsibility to do the good that you want to see in this world. And and I think he definitely shifted uh, what was a traumatic childhood into trying to be as benevolent as he could later in life. And was an educator. He became an elementary school principal. Which leads me to my next question. You certainly, in my listening to your other podcasts, seem incredibly primed to tackle problems in a new uh, novel manners. And I'm thinking about your science curriculum and what you won teacher of the year for. Does the looking at problems in a different manner, does that come naturally to you or did it get fostered in some way? I think it got fostered. I think some part of it's instinctive and then the other was fostered. I had an incredible mentor, Professor Joan Baca, who is no longer with us. She's the reason why I am a teacher. Um, When she passed, it was like gutting for me. But um, she was the best mentor I could have because it's really hard to be a teacher. Um, I think it's gotten harder over the years with um, parents, with the pandemic, lack of resources for um, certain teachers. Um, My school tends to be very generous with um, classroom resources. So um, I don't want to like lump all schools together, but um, I would say that. And then when I did my student teaching, I have never really shared this, but I'll share it now. I, my second semester of student teaching, I had a classroom of all Latino students and they couldn't barely speak English. And I was like, well, they still have to learn. How how can I reach them? And I said, well, maybe through science because it's you know very visual. I could put vocabulary; they can repeat it, and that and that was so that was instinctive, right? And and then that whole class ended up showing proficiency in science education, and then that's what catapulted me to make science education what I devote my education career to because it works. It's the one area maybe outside of art and music where you can fail 
and still be successful in a, in a content area because it's okay to fail in science. You just do it again. And I think that it provides kids with a certain level of confidence and excitement. And it's such right. an engaging um, content area, especially if you do it through hands-on. So I do want to nerd out a little bit and talk about your paper. Uh, you wrote a paper on second language acquisition and the STEM curricula. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about that and what you found. Yeah, so that was actually an interesting thing. So when I was teaching seventh and eighth grade um, chemistry and physics, um, the kids were really struggling with communicating their um, their thoughts, their ideas using academic language. And so I had this idea of doing a TED Talks with them. <laughs> and so a former, like, actually the teacher that helped me write my platform, we worked together. The kids would come in on Sundays after school. It was like a big, huge deal for like a whole semester. And the kids ended up gaining great confidence in communicating their scientific discoveries, researching skills. And so I reached out to a former professor to come in and watch their TED Talks. And then we collaborated on the paper. And it was another way to say, like, okay, if you have an English language learner, this is another approach to helping them in science is, um, is, is, is chunking lessons, breaking it down. And I found that kids just need things chunked for them. I mean, to say it very quite simply, it's just like, sometimes it's taking a step back. we want to go into a space infinite or finite, right? That's a complex topic for a kid that is an English language learner that is maybe not reading at grade level, but if we can chunk it, simplify it and work with them, then they can comprehend it and communicate it. And that's what we did. And and the paper was pretty popular at the time. Well, I have to tell you, I, in, in preparing for this podcast, I when I came across your paper, I made, reminded me of what my father got his doctorate in education in. He wrote his thesis in 1983 on ESL in a, the Southeast Asian population. And so he looked at essentially the social determinants of language acquisition in the Laotian and Vietnamese population. And so it was the first time in my life that I actually looked up his thesis and read it. It was good. I mean, I, I read it with a just more of a delightful lens than anything technical or academic. And it was, it was nice to get a little insight in his early career. So I would not have done that without our paths crossing. So thank you. Of course. <laughs> I'm glad that inspired you to do that. <laughs> Let's move on to your campaign some of your platform elements. When you made the decision to run, why did you think a congressional seat was the best way to achieve the change you wanted to see, as opposed to, say, an entrepreneurial endeavor or a not-for-profit? That's a really good question. I didn't even consider entrepreneurship because at the time it was like, our leaders are not doing anything. They're not advocating. They're not stepping up. There's this certain level of complacency. And I felt that these things were urgent. And so it was actually between city council and Congress. And I didn't think any of our city council members were particularly horrific or horrible, which would warrant a a primary challenge, um, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I was really, then I went to the next level, which is Brad Sherman. And I was like, oh my God, he's not doing anything. And um, when you really start to look at his track record, you're like, oh my God he shouldn't even be in the seat. And then when the opportunity presented itself where he could stand up and fight and advocate for, you know, George Floyd, the census, our young people, the internet, parents, the COVID, all these different things, there was absent leadership. And so that's why it led me to going against him. And then secondly, I do think that we need bolder voices at the congressional level that are not beholden to special interests and the big banks and all that stuff that will really be a representative of the people to restore hope and um, get people to feel like they can trust their elected officials again. Um, I think they're like after campaigning for Andrew Yang all across the country, you just really no matter where you are, whether it's like heavily Trump supported areas or Bernie or Buttigieg, whoever it was, most people care about the same things. Most people, most people just want um, someone to care at the end of the day. Like yes. if I know that that person gen- genuinely cares, is putting up a fight, that's enough. 
you know, as long as they feel like, you know, heard. And I think that's not a crazy ask. And the current state of our politics, our government is not sustainable, in my opinion. And so that's why I decided to do it. Financial literacy is one of the keystones to your platform. So if you had to design a curriculum for financial literacy, uh, what kind of experiences would you focus on? What kind of chunking elements would you focus on? And how would you be able to provide that at, at scale? So we were looking at the allocation for funding because I want to start with funding because that's really important. So the Department of Education, we are able to um, file for grant requests for uh, public schools. And so that's how it can get funded. So there, there is a way to fund um, better, mo- more robust math programs. And then the second piece on how to do it and scale it up is to rewrite the entire curriculum, the entire math curriculum. I think that we need to keep up with the times and meet this moment. And I think if you get some, uh, there's a lot of information and data out there Um, I think we can really um, change the way in which we approach mathematics. I think we can do it through hands-on project-based learning and deeply connecting it to the real world. So in my my mind, it would be that coupled with two other bills that I would introduce with it would be like three bills that pretty much lay on top of each other. One's a field trip bill, which would allow teachers to take their students out of the classroom. And so you can use that to connect the math curriculum to that real world field trip, they basically would be able to connect their field trip to the math in which they're they're learning. So for example, in um, Santa Monica, where I used to work, we have a muse- the bank, the Wells Fargo Museum. Like it's actually like a like a museum for banking, right? So that would be like where I can potentially take my students and they can learn the banking system. And then it's already funded through this particular legislation. Um, also, um, I did research that banks actually offer uh, speakers to come to students. So I think that we have to stretch our imagination a little bit and um, encourage teachers to do that. Secondly, the stock market should absolutely be a part of it. When I was teaching math last year, it was last year, um, we went over the stock market. And then what ended up happening, GameStop happened. And so we had this teachable moment where we can like, they can completely comprehend how those kids organized on Reddit and what that meant on a fiscal level. And I think that was really a pivotal thing. So I think that that would be something that would be in it. I think there's a place for Bitcoin, personal finance. So like the difference between a debit and credit card, retirement, Roth IRA, 401k, all those different things. What is a compound interest? Um, how to take out a loan, because what's happening is kids are aging. um, When the kids are leaving high school, they don't even have any personal finance. So that would be completely written into the curriculum. And you could start from kindergarten all the way through 12, where it basically lays on top of each other. So another really good example, when I taught second grade many, many years ago, I wanted to be saving. So we had a class bank account. And so through different lessons, we were able to raise money. So when we read freckle juice, we created a freckle juice stand, sold the freckle juice because it was connected to science and math. All the money we raised went into our class bank account. Then when we went into a writing unit, we wrote our own newspaper. All of our newspaper sales went into our class bank account. And then by the time we had X amount of dollars, whatever it was, how do you want to invest this money? And so that's the, that's the kind of the gifs of what I want to see in schools regularly, K through 12th grade. But from 11th and 12th grade, we was specifically personal finance. I love it. I think it's incredibly important. Obviously not taught well enough. For most of us, it's Bitcoin who garners a better understanding of the financial system, not until our adult lives. And so to start K through 12 is incredible. I think much like health, it's one of the most important things to build a productive life. And I just want to just say like another reason why it's important is like, so if you look at the student loan conversation, canceling student loan debt, right? I understand why people want to do this, but I also want to go a little bit deeper. Why are kids taking out loans and not understanding the interest rate on these loans for like an art degree, like a $200,000 art degree? Someone should be saying like, is this a good investment when you, um, after you finish this degree, you might be boggled down and chained to this, this massive debt. I think that's the other piece that frustrates me. Also, when kids are graduating, the remediation, 
the, the thousands of dollars that go into that. And it's usually our math courses. And the reason why kids struggle with math is because it's not connected to the real world. They don't find it relevant. And that's why it needs to be updated. And then um, thirdly, there's a new study that just showed that half of the kids from 2020, um, when they got their degree, they can't even apply it to their field that they were just getting a degree in. So it was like a waste of money. So we also have to kind of, you know, acknowledge that college is not for everyone and there's great value in trade schools and that can also be lucrative. Completely agree. Democracy dollars. I found this idea in- intriguing. Do you think it's a perhaps a more viable option than campaign finance reform? Or do you see it not even addressing that? I think it's coupled with. So we obviously have to overturn Citizens United. But I think democracy dollars, why it's so important to me, and um, it's actually from Andrew Yang's campaign, is because it allows everybody to be able to participate in the democratic process. You know, there's no reason why a cashier, a, a mail carrier, everyday working person shouldn't be able to support a candidate that they like. Most people don't have disposable income. 75% of people live paycheck to paycheck or one paycheck away from financial ruin. Supporting a candidate is like just not even in the budget, right? And so it allows the Shermans of the world to keep their seat because regular people, it's hard to primary them. Like I'm working full time trying to do this and it's really, really, really hard. And so I think democracy dollars levels the playing field, allows anyone to run, puts pressures on current incumbents to actually step up and do the work and be in their community, not just around election time. And I think it gets big money out of politics. I think it also builds engagement from the indiv- individuals. You know, they, it's, a, it's in addition to one's vote, now you have money, you have skin in the game with regard to who you, you are endorsing and much more likely to, I believe follow along in the in politics and not become as apathetic as we have in recent years. Yeah. So one of the most uh, important parts of your platform is obviously uh, UBI. And this was something that um, I'm presuming you picked up from Andrew Yang. Yeah. So UBI, to me, it's very controversial within the Bitcoin space, but I think it is an important policy to address poverty in in and of itself. We have so many social safety nets that do not work. There's a lot of fraudulent activity. A lot of money goes into the administration piece of it. And I think if we just give people cash, then they could just do with it what they want. And it goes back into the data I just referenced with people living paycheck to paycheck, a bill away from financial ruin, it allows them to be able to do what's best for their life. And if say you're a stay-at-home mom, well, your work is still valuable, right? And it, and it creates options for families if you're a caregiver. Like I just met a woman yes, um, on, yeah, yesterday um, when I was out door knocking, she was like, I had to give up my job to take care of my dad because he has Alzheimer's, right? And so I think we it brings humanity back. And I think it allows people to live in dignity and make, be able to make hard decisions and not have to worry about the financial implications of that decision. And the current government programs are not working. If they were, we wouldn't have such massive poverty. Do you think UBI would replace or complement existing programs? I think it would replace some and complement others. Um, so I think that would be, for me, a conversation with, like, I would host a town hall. Hey, I'm introducing this bill, and it could potentially get passed. What programs do you find to be benefiting your life? And we'll keep those ones. Maybe those, maybe some of those programs are really, truly at the state level and doesn't affect the, the federal programs. I think that's where the conversation has to be had. But we did go through the federal budget, And if we did get rid of some of the current programs that are not working and replace it with a universal basic income, we could do up to $750, not the $1,000 Andrew was proposing, but we were able to fiscally do without printing money. What we saw with the pandemic, the stimulus checks, it prevented 11.5 people from falling into poverty. And then the child tax credit, which is not necessarily UBI, but it was extra cash in one's bank account, cut child poverty by half. So we know that direct cash 
is a, 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 an effective solution. And every UBI study that has ever been done, every trial has proven to pull people out of poverty and make a, a substantial difference. So I think if we were to fix our education system, fix foster care system, you know, really provide health care for everyone and a universal basic income, I think those four things would allow people to really flourish and prevent a lot of the poverty that we're experiencing in our country. Are you familiar with what the research says with regard to how UBI affects the labor market? People who receive the UBI, are they more likely to stay in their current position or remain unemployed if they are or try to find new positions? Yeah. So the data that we were able to see, because some of these trials, they they uh, come out, I'm just going to use one from Uganda. It catapulted entrepreneurship for women in particular during the pandemic. They were able to stay safe and not, you know, have COVID because they were able to afford to stay at home when they needed to stay at home. But it really allowed women to flourish. I think there's this notion that people would just stay at home and not work Will there be people like that? Of course, but there's people like that now that don't even get it that are like that. So I think it's important to not lump the one or 2% with the 98%. So I, I think that the data is showing that it reduces alcohol use, drug use, um, it reduces stress, and it allows people to make their way into professions that they actually enjoy, which brings happiness, which obviously is um, something that's really important when, we, when we're when we like thinking about the state of our country right now. What's your opinion on it? What do you think of UBI? I don't have enough knowledge of the history, and I was in preparation for this podcast, I was digging through it and some of the research, and there are compelling arguments uh, on either way, and it sounds like the two biggest issues are one, what is the problem that UBI is really trying to solve for? And let's be clear about that. And then two, the implementation, right? And we saw the challenges, both with the stimulus checks, as well as the Affordable Care Act, and the bureaucracy of all of that. It's not to say that it shouldn't be done, right? But it is a huge hang up in, in trying to implement it. Well, the implementation would be with, like the way that they did the stimulus checks, it would just go right into your bank account. So we would have to make sure that everyone it has access to a bank account and that they are signed up. You know, most people were able to get it. But what happened was, is when they rolled it out, they weren't really informative and they are not reaching people. And so some a bill that I'm actually working on that I will introduce when I'm in Congress is a marketing bill. So if you are basically rolling out, let's say a universal basic income, there has to be money spent on advertising it and make sure people are aware of it, how to access it and people that would most benefit. So it like, that is the problem that we're seeing. Like they did a UBI trial um, called LEAP in California. And it was like, it's like this trial done through a university. And I'm like, okay, great. So you post it on your social media, but what if people are not following you on social media? Then how are they supposed to know about this program? You know, there should be people like a street team of people that are going to these encampments really going to our local leaders that work at these organizations say like we have this government program let's sign up everyone in the shelter so they can be enrolled in it and have access to it and so that's the that's the intention of the bill is making sure when we are rolling out things it's done effectively and really reaching those that need it the most Oftentimes, I take a kind of agnostic view to policy decisions and, you know, you weigh the risk and benefit going forward, but in much of a scientific way of doing things, you, for example, have these trials that have been done in various cities, countries around the world. I would like to see that, but then additionally on an ever-increasing scales, right, so that you can start to see the secondary and tertiary effects of a UBI and they could be positive, they could be negative, there could be a mixture of both, obviously. But what I think is the problem sometimes with policies is if they are not good, they never get rolled back. And so I'm totally on board with trying something to see if it is beneficial. Um, but then we should have the ability to say, you know what, we tried this, we thought it was going to be helpful, but it wasn't. So we will stop it at this point. I agree with that. And the Uganda one was over 10 years. And I think they're only in like year six. 
the way that they set up the program, which I found to be really quite fascinating, they did a lump sum payments and the current welfare that the that their um, country offers and the and the the part of the village that's getting the payments are the ones that are flourishing wasn't there a ubi program sponsored by y combinator i think in conjunction with university of michigan if i'm not mistaken you're familiar with that I'm not aware. There's the ones that we've been following were that one, the one in Canada that's specifically given to people that are experiencing homelessness, the Stockton one, because that's like in my hood. Right. Um, and then I'm following the foster care one that they just implemented in California. So basically that one is when kids age out, they usually fall into poverty or end up in our prison system. And so now what they're doing is when kids are aging out, they get thousand dollars but I think they need more than that. I think that they need to make sure they have a government ID, that they have a bank account, that they're enrolled in school and a trade school or a job, and they have someone to oversee them for two years post being out of the system. So the first, don't get me started on foster care. I, I'm very passionate about it. <laughs> no, but, I know. It, but that's so but, so. but there is a trial right now specifically for foster youth. Of course, my my mind goes to Bitcoin, and I think about the Alaskan dividend fund and. I just want a state to start mining Bitcoin and so that they can take the revenues and pile it into a UBI for their citizens. So you were first introduced to Bitcoin by your staffers, correct? Yes. And then you had the opportunity to have a, a good chunk of time talking to several knowledgeable uh, folks in the space. What was it about that conversation that stood out to you? What was your aha moment with Bitcoin? We had a lot of conversations people from all walks of life. And for me, it was this solidarity of being learners. Like it was like, everybody loves being learners. Everyone's learning, not, no one like try to shove it down your throat. It was just really like, here's the information. This is what we have. What do you think about it? Maybe you read this and then you find your own articles and you were able to push back respectfully, obviously. And um, it had these really meaningful conversations. And through those conversations, I was like, wow, there's something here and it's something worth supporting. Um, The problem that I'm running into specifically is um, really making sure Bitcoin doesn't become a partisan issue. Um, I think the frustration I'm seeing is like this with the printing of money, that uh, if you're a progressive or a Democrat, why would you even support Bitcoin? And I think we have to really get away from that narrative. Anybody that wants to have it should be able to have it. That's why I'm doing this podcast. <laughs> I know, <laughs> and and I, I know people from all walks of life in my district that have it. And that's the whole point. And I think Bitcoin really brings people together. I, I really do. I met a lot of people I would probably never have met if it weren't for Bitcoin, right? So um, that's a challenge. Trying to make the case for why we need something like the Green New Deal while having Bitcoin is is, is a struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we do have to be mindful of the climate. I think that's an environment that's very, very important. I'm a science teacher, so I care very deeply about this. But I think that the Bitcoin community is trying to mine the Bitcoin through solar, wind, and methane, and, and natural gas, which is awesome, right? Um, so I, for me, I don't have an answer, but I'm wondering, like, how can it be a part of the Green New Deal? And that would help get progressives to be more in support of it. Maybe you have ideas, I don't know, I've been really, like, trying to think about this. But so those are probably, like, the two biggest problems that I'm, I'm running into with people. I'm wondering why you think Bitcoin is actually a force for good, but not necessarily something that the the government can provide. Because the banking system keeps people impoverished. Check cashing, pawn shops should not be financial institutions for people. And when you see like during the pandemic, the big banks had an opportunity to waive fees. They didn't do it. And they made millions of dollars off the back of the poor. And I, I just really have take great issue with that. I just think that we're at a at a time where you know everyone is just trying to stay afloat, and if your greed is so out of control that you think it's okay for someone else to have to go through the financial struggles, I just really just don't like that. And I've met enough people where Bitcoin has pulled them up out of poverty to support it. 
And so, especially people that got in really early on, it's been life-changing for them. And they would have had those opportunities through our current banking system. You had mentioned uh, the environmental concerns from progressives. Do you think there are other reasons why uh, progressives appear averse to Bitcoin? Because they're uninformed. I don't think, I think they, I think the problem with the very, very far left is who I'm referring to when I say this, is that they have this list of items and there's no wavering on that list. There's no adding, there's no subtracting. If you don't check off the boxes on all those lists, you're not a true progressive. And for me, I just just don't agree with that. I think you could be for progress and be for items on that list and other things. I would like to see them fight for foster care reform, but I'm not going to say you're not a real progressive because you don't fight for foster care reform. I think anything that combats poverty is progressive and should be supported. And I think Bitcoin does that. And so that is something that I I get really frustrated with. Um, You know, there's someone else running in this race who fits that narrative more than I do because I'm not into screaming and yelling and like the character assassination. I just want to get things done. And whatever the best idea is, that's the idea that I'm going with. I don't care who it, I mean, I I mean, just straight up, like I don't care who it comes from at this point. If someone has a really good idea to address the problems that we are facing, I am going to get behind that good idea. And that's just where I am with it at this point. You know, there's an old saying, pride comes before the fall. And I think that's what's happening in our politics is the pride is getting in the way of actually problem solving. And so that's why I hope to be a breath of fresh air in Congress and work across the aisle. And I I can't confirm this fully yet, but we think this is true. Um, We looked at all the caucuses that are in Congress right now, and the blockchain caucus is the most bipartisan caucus out there. It has currently, it has 17 Democrats and 18 Republicans. It is the most bipartisan that we've been able to see. We're going through each and every one of them. That should also tell you something. That's incredible. I mean, how many years we've been hearing politicians talking about reaching across the aisle. In here, we have one issue that's been able to do that. Yep. I just find it mind-blowing. But to your point earlier, I that's one of the things that I, that I really enjoyed about Bitcoin is that it's opened your eyes to... A different way, like you said, of how you've been teaching, a different way of approaching things. And so you become less tied to the means by which an end is obtained. You're more agnostic to how your end goal is obtained. You just want the end goal to be obtained. You don't necessarily care how in turn it is done. So if it if you can improve your grid, make your grid more green through Bitcoin, that should be endorsed because yeah. it's achieving your end and not be pessimistic because it's just Bitcoin and you're writing it off entirely. And I'm a data person. You know, I look to data. I look to facts. And like going back to UBI, the data is showing time and time again, it, 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 it helps people. It's, it's, it's effective. And so until someone can give me, show me something better, I'm sticking with that. Bitcoin has proven to address a lot of problems as well. So until someone shows me the alternative, then I'm sticking with Bitcoin. Right. And so I, I like, and then like the narrative around it too, is like they villainize you know, people that hold Bitcoin as like they're criminals, it's for this. Well, you could say that for pretty much anything. I'm going to quote Reverend Wendy, who is also a pro-Bitcoin candidate. You know, it's also financial justice. You know, it, it really is another way for people to flourish and, and have sovereignty over their lives and live in dignity. And that's why one in six people hold Bitcoin or a form of cryptocurrency. Why are you focused on Bitcoin as opposed to other projects? I have to ask. So everyone always asks me this question. I think it's because I hold Bitcoin for one. And so I've seen it. Like I've interacted. So I, I, I know how it works. Mm-hmm. Also, it's the most stable out of all of them. And I think that's really important. 
Um, the innovation behind it is so advanced and fascinating. Like our campaign has benefited through the Lightning Network tremendously. And so I love the technology that's brewing out of it. And I love the job creation that's brewing out of the Bitcoin community. Like with the miners, they're making six figures and it's all solar wind and methane capturing. And I think that's really encouraging and, and exciting. And because I do, and I mean, honest, because I work full time and I have a plethora of stuff that I have to learn about, um, I have just made it my mission to really understand um, blockchain and Bitcoin and the innovations re surrounding Bitcoin. So that's why I'm pro Bitcoin. But for those that like other cryptocurrencies, I'm still a better option than Brad. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 100%. That is true. So uh, obviously, you're an accomplished teacher. What could the Bitcoin community do better to teach others about Bitcoin and its benefits? Good question. Meet people where they're at. Yeah. Let's yeah. You know, we're learners. Like someone just tweeted at me, well, why do you have the green new deal in this? And I was like, I was like, well, I'm learning about how we can marry the two. I was like, have some grace and patience, like as we figure this out, because we're all learners in this space. So you have to meet people where they're at and not expect people to just be an expert immediately. When I talked to Jack Dorsey just recently, I said to him, I was like, you know, one thing that we have to do is make it more user-friendly and less complicated for one to understand. Like we got to get to a place where we can explain it so simply that someone in five minutes like, Oh yeah. Like they, they, they get it. Like I can use in like someone can just like of a new social media app, like an Instagram type came up, people can immediately figure it out because they're so familiar with all the other ones. We got to get it to a place where it's super user-friendly. So um, I think just meet people where they're at. I think that's, some of the best advice about how to teach Bitcoin that I've ever heard. Keep it a, a nonpartisan issue. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's the trouble that I've run into with the podcast. You know, progressive was about the best label that I could come up with. Uh, you're not going to pick Democrat or liberal and try to combine all those into one title, but it wanted to encompass uh, the values, not necessarily any type of political ideology. And, but I've got a few last questions for you, Erica. Uh, what was a time in your life you failed at something and how did you pull yourself back up from that? This is a fun one, a light one. So before I was a teacher, I did stand-up comedy for a year. And I mean, there's a lot of room for failure, but it was my first time doing the comedy store. And I had worked so hard on a five-minute set. Um, and I it was my turn and I went up. And everyone was literally just blinking at me. Like no one was laughing. I was blinking. I was mortified. I was, I, it was like the worst feeling in the world. I mean, and black comics were all there like, Ooh, <laughs> like, like they just like felt so, it was like almost like we felt bad for her. That was how bad it was. And then what ended up happening that I said, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to really, really commit to this. And I can't say the comedian's name that helped me, but there was a comedian who's very, very popular now. He's worked really hard with me. He taught me how to punch up jokes, how to do act outs, callbacks and all this stuff. And he's like, okay, we're going to book you again for crack em up Thursdays. And I go, I had the set of my life and it really catapulted that part of my journey when I did comedy for a year. Um, people don't think I'm funny um, because I'm so serious now and I have, my life has just completely changed. But at that time, I was pretty funny. <laughs> That's incredible. I actually had, a, I had my mic standing my, um, cause then there was a point where I, I did it for a year and then I kept my mic stand in my classroom for like, I don't know, five years or something. So my students literally, I have photos of my like comic, my mic and my mic stand. <laughs> Telling jokes on the house floor. We will see it. What is the first thing that you're going to do for you personally when you win? How are you going to reward yourself? Whether I win or lose, I'm going to do this. Whether I win or lose, I am going to take myself out to a really nice dinner. A really, because I've literally went, I spent a lot of my own personal money running for office and I haven't had a break in two years. I've been at this for two years. People don't realize that because I'm just now really getting my name out in the national press. But I, I launched my campaign Juneteenth of 2020 and I, and I've had one four day break 
which was around Christmas time. And I had two days in the summer, where I gave myself two days in the summer. But I have been literally every single day, all day, every day, working on this for almost two years. So I will treat myself to a very nice dinner at Mastro's. Perfect. Last question for you, Erica. What gives you hope? Young people. There's no question. We have a lot of young people on that work on our campaign and their optimism is just everything. Um, We were just writing postcards and I'm like, we only had four chairs because I only thought it was going to be four people showing, but more people came and I'm sitting on concrete. I have like a box and I'm like writing postcards so they can have the chairs. And we're sitting there and they're like, isn't this great? We're going to have 600 postcards. And they're like, that was so exciting for them. I'm thinking I'm sitting on the ground. This is like horrible. My back hurts. <laughs> and then they're like, okay, now let's go door knocking. And then we go to two hours of door knocking. Let's go support a small business. We go support small. So their energy, their hope gives me hope. And a really cute example my students know that I'm running for Congress now um, because my name was getting out in the community. And a second grader goes, Hey, Miss Erica, how's your campaign going? And I'm like, it's going. They're like, oh, we know that you could do it. We're rooting for you. There's just this sense of like optimism. And it's really the whole reason why I'm running. So um, that gives me hope. And I think the fact that we are starting to get our name out and we're, and we haven't compromised, I have not compromised my morals and values. It gives me hope too, that you can do something like this, keep your integrity intact and focus on issues and be successful because when this is all said and done, I, when we win, because I think we will win, I want this to mean something. You know, I want this to be more than just like unseating Brad. I want it to be a new wave of how to run a campaign, a model, a different way of governing. And I really want to be able to show everyone, regardless of what community is supporting, that I'm a person of my word. Like, I'm really looking forward to be like, wow, she's she's for real. Like, she really kept her word. I want to, I cannot wait for that. And that's how you build back trust in the political system. And that's why I said that is like, I'm, I'm hoping that I can just have the opportunity to show that I'm a person of my word and revitalize hope in people. And I don't know all the answers. I'm not so polished or seeing that through this conversation. Like I'm really a regular person just doing the best I can to learn and to try to make a difference. And I think that's all you can ask of someone, but I learned that there's profound value in community. And that if you don't know the answer, it's okay because you can go to that community and get the answers. Like if it's a deaf community issue, I can go to Michaela and that and that that local leader. If it's Bitcoin, I can go to a plethora of people. If it's for you know whatever the issue is, like I have like nurses, whatever it is, I have a I can go to people and and ask for help. And I think that is really cool. Well, you give me hope. You give the Bitcoin community hope. Your energy is infectious. I hope you win. You will win. And I'm so glad that you you joined me tonight. Thank you so much for your time, Erica. Thank you for having me. 